The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Um, uh, first, before we go into the views themselves in terms of what views are, um, I want to talk a little bit about a kind of a common theme or thread that runs under all of the grounds that uh, are, are put out in the sutta. So, to start with, I'd like to revisit a little bit the meditative misunderstanding and, um, and think about or, or, or contemplate a little bit about how that might happen, just briefly. Um, so, based on, and I'm going to go through this in deeper layers as this lecture unfolds, so just for now, based on an experience uh, of, for instance, seeing past lives. Um, a view could be created based on that experience. You know, that um, you might not you might not have a view that that things are eternal, but having seen back into what seems to be eternity it might well be that having that experience would make you a convert, <laughs> essentially. Um, so in, in one way, the, the views could be created from that, the direct experience itself, a misinterpretation, a misunderstanding of that direct experience, like the elephant sutta, you know, like the elephant uh, misunderstanding. Or the other way that um, I see this, happening is that they might confirm a view that one already holds. Um, essentially, you might, you know, look at, you know, if, if somebody has been, has been um, taught something and told, and I've experienced this, so why don't you go off and try to see this? They might find that in their meditative experience, you know, and from that essentially um, confirm the view based, confirm the view that they already hold. To some extent, I think all of these views that were described. Um, have a basic underlying view of identity view. Where does it say that in here? One of these suttas. Here it is. Um, the middle of page six. No, of the supplement. This is a uh, a householder coming to talk to the the Buddhas. I mean the Brahmas. I mean the the monks, and he says, "Well, concerning all of these speculative views," and he names them. Uh, when what is present do these views come into being, and when what is absent do they not come into being? And the response is, concerning the various views that arise in the world, when self-identity view is present, these views come into being. When self-identity view is absent, they don't come into being. Tony. Mike. The mic is next to Marcia. I'm thinking about a view like Anicca. All things are impermanent. All things subject to arising are subject to passing. Is that dependent? Is with this? Well, in in this particular sutta, it's talking about it's the these speculative views, views. Okay, so the various views that arise in the 
world. He's Concerning the various views, I guess, yeah, I mean, some might translate it as these various views. There were places where I saw that term these used. Um, this one in particular refers to these speculative views around the, so- the self, the soul, the world, etc. Okay, okay, so and the views in the Brahmajala. Here, and actually here it says, Oh, the, these along with the 62 views mentioned in the Brahmajala, <laughs> when what exists, do these views come into being? Um, so concerning these, identity view is a foundational view that underlies all of these. This view of an existent self, that there is such a thing. So all of these speculative views assume this either as a something there is this self that will be annihilated, there is this self that will continue into immortality, or in the case of the equivocator, there is a self that uh, is experiencing um, uh, suffering or a self that is experiencing um, fear and agitation around being wrong. So around this notion, I just want to bring in a couple of suttas uh, that kind of highlight some of the the words the Buddha had to say around this notion of identity of existence. One, the famous quote, in whatever way they conceive, the fact is ever other than that. This term conceive um, is... The Pali is manyati, and it is related to identification. It is the notion of I am. So in, in whatever way they conceive, the fact is ever other than that, inherently refers to in whatever way somebody feels I am. I am this, I am that, I, this is mine. Um, that The fact is ever other than that. Another very powerful um, thing the Buddha had to say around this notion of existence, of identity, is in another very famous sutta. And um, I'll read this one. This one is the bottom of page six. So I find this one to just be very powerful, um, just to hear this. This is Tanisaro Bhikkhu's translation um, I'm going to interpolate some of Bhikkhu Bodhi's words into this. Uh, I find them a little more accessible uh, in terms of understanding. Right view. In what way is there right view? The world in general inclines to two views, to existence or to non-existence. But for him who, with the highest wisdom, sees the arising of the world as it really is, there is no notion of non-existence in regard to the world. And for him who, with the highest wisdom, sees the passing away of the world as it really is, there is no notion of existence in regard to the world. The world grasps after systems and is imprisoned by dogmas, But he does not go along with that system grasping, that mental obstinacy and dogmatic bias, does not grasp at it, does not affirm, this is myself. He knows without doubt or hesitation that whatever arises is merely dukkha arising, that what passes away is merely dukkha passing away. And such knowledge is his own, not depending on anyone else. This is what constitutes right view. Everything exists. This is one extreme view. Nothing exists. This is the other extreme. Avoiding both extremes, the Tathagata teaches a doctrine of the middle. Conditioned by ignorance are the formations. Conditioned by formations is consciousness. Conditioned by consciousness is name and form, the six sense bases, contact, feeling, craving, grasping, becoming, birth, aging, and death. So there comes to be the arising of this entire mass of suffering. But from the complete fading away and cessation of ignorance, there comes the cessation of formation. 
From the cessation of formations comes the cessation of consciousness. So there comes about the complete cessation of this entire mass of suffering. So this is what is often called, I mean, actually this is an interesting kind of um, subtlety of language that I have seen in the last few months in doing this research. This is often called the middle teaching. The, do- the teaching of dependent origination is the middle teaching, the middle doctrine, in effect. Um, it's not the middle path. The middle path is the eightfold path. So there's a distinction between the middle teaching and the middle path. Um, just that's just something. That's just kind of a, a, a point that when um, I've seen sometimes people translated it teaches the middle way and then describes this, but the, the more clear translation seems to be teaches the doctrine of the middle, or this is the middle teaching. So this is the doctrine. This is the view essentially that the Buddha puts out there. And it gives us the framework that we need in order to unravel the whole realm of speculative views, this middle teaching. So looking at how, how does one extricate oneself from this net of views? And this is what the the title of the sutta, Brahma Jala, actually refers to. Um, the, the term Brahma Jala is translated roughly as something like supreme net, or Jala stands for net, B- Brahma, supreme. Um, and it refers to this network of speculative views that we get caught in. Essentially, how do we, how do we extricate ourselves from this snare, this trap of all of these views? And the Buddha proposes a way out. This is what he talks about towards the end of the sutta. Um, And rather than looking in the sutta itself, I used Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation to pull out sections. Again, I find his translation to be a little more clear. So on page seven um, are the the relevant passages that I'm going to be mostly talking about for the next little while page 7 of the supplemental handout. The first clue about how to extricate ourselves from this snare comes in what is called the refrain. This refrain, the first excerpt at the top of this section, is repeated at the end of every one of these views. So it it keeps coming back over and over again. So at the end of each view, he says the Tathagata understands these standpoints thus assumed and thus misapprehended lead to such a future destination, to such a state in the world beyond. He understands as well what transcends this. Yet even that understanding he does not misapprehend. I think that's a crucial sentence and we'll come back to that. And because he is free from misapprehension, he has realized within himself the state of perfect peace. Having understood as they really are the origin and the passing away of feelings, the gratification, the danger, and the escape from them, the Tathagata bhikkhus is emancipated through non-clinging. So key to this passage to me seems to be this idea of misapprehension misunderstanding about what views are. And with respect to eradicating this misapprehension, in this passage, the Buddha points to his own clear understanding of feelings. So what are views? To talk a little bit about this misapprehension of views. The next passage the arise under the arising of views. The Buddha says, with respect to each view, he'll, he says this, that is only the feeling of those who do not know and see. 
That is only the agitation and vacillation of those who are immersed in craving. So he says the views are equated to feelings. Now, I think someplace, I think it's in Bhikkhu Bodhi in his introduction, he says that he's using this as a kind of a a teaching device, that he doesn't actually um, think that views are feeling, that there's more to the views, but that it's, it's pointing to a particular aspect. So I want to explore this a little bit. And, and um, so th- let me read this again. It says, So only the feeling of those who do not know and see, that is only the agitation and vacillation of those who are immersed in craving. So this is about a particular view. Those who are eternalists and proclaim on four grounds the self and the world to, to be eternal, that is the feeling of those who do not know and see. That is the agitation and vacillation of those immersed in craving. So let's start this exploration around the um, looking at the craving aspect of it. The um, one way to look at this or to understand this is that these views are fabricated in order to satisfy a craving. So there are three three kinds of of craving the Buddha talked about the craving for sense pleasure, the craving for existence, and the craving for non-existence. Kamatanha, bhavatanha, vibhavatanha. So let's look at, and this this comes uh, from Bhikkhu Bodhi also, his his, um, introduction. Um, Just kind of look a little bit at these kinds of craving and think about how they might relate to various of the views. Okay, so there's the craving for sense pleasure, which is kamatanha, the craving for existence, bhavatanha, and the craving for non-existence, vibhavatanha. So these, these are kind of ways that we operate, in a sense, these, these cravings. They're, they're um, uh, you know, we, we may be motivated by one or the other of them at a particular time. One or the other of them may be strong in a, stronger in us than another. So in one who, in particular, uh, craving for existence is strong. And this is a, is a very, I mean, this seems to me, this craving for existence um, is very deep in, in, um, in the species, in living beings in general, this, this sense of wanting to exist. From this perspective, if you have a strong craving for existence, it would feel good to believe in eternity, in immortality. So that view created would satisfy, to some extent, that craving. If you if you connect to identify hang in with that view, it's like you know that that craving for existence can somehow feel a little bit satisfied by that view. The craving for non-existence, if someone has the feeling, you know that that, that you know, it's just too hard to be alive. It's too I don't want to be. Immortal. <laughs> this is just not for me. <laughs> um, one might find that the view of annihilationism would feel good to have the idea. This is, this is, you know, this will be the end. When death comes, that will be the end. Sense pleasure. The craving for sense pleasure. Um, might lead to some different kinds of views, depending on how you held this view of sense pleasure, as Bhikkhu Bodhi points out. It might lead to an annihilationist position 
if you kind of want to use that as justification for, well, there's nothing after the end of this world, you know, there's no heaven, there's no hell, why not just enjoy it to the max? Let's just indulge in sense pleasure. Um, so that's one way that, you know, if you, you know, to justify or to satisfy the craving for sense pleasure and make it feel okay, you might have that view of annihilationism. Uh, You might also find in that person, if there's a strong craving for existence along with that strong craving for sense pleasure, a view in immortality where that immortality would be blissful, sensually blissful. So to me, what this um, points to is that our views The views that we hold, and I think this is something for us all to look at in our own experience. Do the views that we hold tend to confirm something that we want to believe? To me, this this recalls the Kalama Sutta a little bit. There's there's a place in there. um, I think he says... Don't go by acceptance of a view after pondering it. So, um, you know, kind of that one to me kind of points to the, you know, think about it. Does it feel good? Does it, you know, does it agree with what I want to believe? Um, this is some place that I think we all tend to get caught. That because of a craving or an, it, a movement towards a particular kind of craving, views. We like views that support those cravings. So we may have a predisposition. So reading that sentence again, this is only the feeling of those who do not know and see, only the agitation and vacillation of those immersed in craving. So there may be a predisposition towards particular views based on what one craves, how one craves. And now I want to talk about the feeling side of things, the connection of feeling to views. And there's two ways that I want to explore this. Um, The first is, so here the Buddha says, this is only the, there's the ways in this sutta he connects these views to feeling and the transcendence of these views to understanding feelings in these first two passages. So he he connects the the views as being only the feeling of those who do not know and see. And he says of himself, having as understood as they really are, the origin and the passing away of feelings, the gratification, danger, and escape from them, the Tathagata is emancipated through non-clinging. So this points to a connection, an intimate connection between feeling and views. And there is a sutta on this, the Honeyball Sutta. Um, Did I put it in here? I did. The bottom of page seven, there is a paragraph from the Honeyball Sutta. And I didn't use the standard one, which is 18.6. I put in the mind. uh, This is basically um, a description of a process that goes on in our minds all the time around the six sense bases, around I nose, tongues, body, um, all of the five senses plus the mind. And since we're talking about views, I decided to, with this paragraph, use the mind door so that we can reflect on that. Only I forgot to replace it everywhere. (laughs) Or you can cross it out when we come to that. Um, So dependent on the mind and mind objects... Mind consciousness arises. The meeting of the three is contact. With contact as a condition, there is feeling. What one feels, that one perceives. What one perceives, that one thinks about. So let's stop there for now. So this is, to me, this part is talking about the construction of all kinds of concepts. Um, you know, in our physical world, if we're seeing something, 
the there's there's the eye in sight, the meeting of the three is contact, what one sees that one feels, what one feels that one perceives, what one perceives that one thinks about, what one thinks about that one, one mentally proliferates. So it's this whole notion of conceptualizing and and identification that this process is describing. So in the in the realm of um, you know phys- physicality, it's perhaps around the conceptualization of chair. You know, we see, we see an object, there's the contact, there's the experience, there's the perception of chair, and then there may be the thinking about it. Oh, that's a chair from IMC. Oh, I wonder what that chair is doing here, not being at IMC. You know, what is that chair doing here? So there's this this thinking about. And then maybe a whole proliferation around that chair belongs at IMC. Somebody took it from IMC. You know, so there there is this whole uh, elaboration that goes on. That is the process of papancha. The term mental proliferation is translating the term papancha. Now, papancha in the commentaries, there are three kinds of papancha that are described in the commentaries. There's the papancha of craving, the papancha of conceit, of of self, essentially, of I am, and the papancha of views. So this, um, this teaching on this construction of how papancha gets going can be understood also as an understanding of how views get going, how views are constructed in the first place. Yeah, Tony. Oh, use the mic. Use the mic. It's behind you. Oh. <laughs> He's going to take it away. <laughs> These, it looks like we're, we're running through the skandhas here. Um, Mind, we got consciousness. What one feels, feels one perceives. perceives. What so one you perceives. Got feeling and perception, and, and then formation. Formation, and, and we start with body in right. the in the sense. Yes, right. yeah. It is the processes of the, of the skandhas here, um, and then it gets into the um, the for, the true the the real. I mean the the thinking about is formation, and the mental proliferation is formation. Run amok, basically mental formation. Run amok. So I want to think about this. You know, how might this work around views? So you know, thinking about this last night, I came up with a scenario. We can you can shoot holes in this, but but let's try this on on for size. So you might meet someone who proclaims a view. <laughs> the soul and the world are eternal okay this person proclaiming this view we hear this and it moves into a concept so it's not just the vibratory ear hearing we're we're talking about we're talking about it's moved into a concept it's become a mind object it's an idea in our mind this idea the soul and the world are eternal it becomes a mind object so dependent on the mind and mind object there's mind consciousness the meeting of the three is contact so that concept has impacted the mind then there's feeling we might feel it as pleasurable if it confirms or you know oh that sounds like a nice thing you know i'm eternal if our craving is a such that it would, that, I mean, the, the, the feeling essentially comes out of uh, the hist- our history. The feeling is conditioned on history. So the feeling of that view to us might be different. It might be different from one person to another. Say you're a kind of person that has the craving for existence, and so this just feels pleasant. We perceive it. We think about it. Then um, we begin to proliferate um, that he or she, this person, knows what they're talking about. They say they have meditative proof about what they're talking about. And they even tell me they can teach me how to do that meditation so that I can see this for myself. So 
And look how many people there are following this person. This, this, this sounds good to me. So, this view kind of gets formed, constructed through this process of thinking about, basically. It becomes kind of a place, a, a, a form in our own minds, a view in our own minds. Then the second part of this sutta describes how, based on holding a view, we then interpret everything in our experience, kind of through that filter. So, the second, uh, second part of this, with what one has mentally proliferated as the source, perceptions and notions tinged by mental proliferation beset a man with respect to past, future, and present mind objects cognizable through the mind. So this is, to me, this is how one then um, sees experience with that view. So, for instance, that per, the person coming with that view now, believing that view, has a meditative experience described by their teacher of seeing past lives or whatever. And because of the view, one takes that as confirming the view. Now, somebody else might have um, a different view going into that meditation and come up with a different extrapolation But having that view already, experience gets interpreted in light of that view. Now, this this happens to us all the time. This process is not simply relegated to these speculative views. This kind of thing happens around um, an identity view. This this kind of, to me, the, the a big place around this is around identity view. We take an identity as being someone who experiences a lot of anger or someone who um, is generally happy. You know, whatever our view is of ourself, what we take in tends to confirm that view. And we tend to screen or filter. That view kind of serves as a filter to not take in things that don't confirm that view. So this is a... um, This is a very powerful teaching, I think. Um, To really look at how our views are constructed and how our views influence what we see. It's it's a kind of a two-way thing going on. Yeah, Mike, over here. Is view the same as belief? I think um, I think I would say no, because there are times when people hold views that they take it as truth, not what they believe. I mean, a belief a belief one could say is, uh, you know, you could say this is my belief you know, about a view. Or you could say, this is truth, where it steps out of the realm of belief, in a sense. I mean, it's, no, it's, it's, it's beyond belief at that point. So it's, it's more rigid than what I would call belief. So I'll make a distinction between that, that in a lot of places where the... Um, People are talking about these views, like on the first page of this uh, supplemental handout, some of these views that are listed, or all of these views that are listed are listed as saying, the cosmos is eternal, only this is true, everything else is worthless. So the views kind of come along with this notion of truth. So it's, it's um, one could say, of a view, this is my belief, 
Yeah. The cosmos is eternal. This is my belief. That's, that might be a true statement. The, the blue, the, that, 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 might, that's a true, that might be a true statement. If you believe the view saying that, I be, this is my belief. I believe this view. And as Amy pointed out, this is what the Buddha talks about in, um, in one sutta on the preservation of truth. How does one preserve truth? When one believes something, one states, this is my belief. So I distinguish between them. Because to me, um, does, that, does, that, does that make sense to you? There's a difference between saying X is true, this X is true, and X is my belief. X is my belief refers to a internal uh, experience, not a statement about reality. I hear what you're saying, but I think so often people do see their beliefs as truth. true. Well, that's, yeah. that's true. And, yeah. and yeah. even if they say, I believe, what they're really saying is... is true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's, and yes. and um, in my work as a therapist, uh, I have seen with myself and others that when we hold a belief about ourselves... Not only do we filter out things that disprove it, but in the face of contradictory proof, we, we hold still, that yes, we belief. hold the belief. Yes, it's utterly yeah. amazing. Yeah, yeah. So, 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 I agree with you, and I just wanted to kind of point out a little bit of the distinction between the terms. So, there's that aspect of it that, um, with respect to views that. Um, there is this process by which views are created that this sutta describes. And it begins with this simple contact, feeling, perception, so that it's, it's, it's arising out of that. And then it moves into thinking, proliferation. And once it gets to proliferation, it becomes that view, that belief through which we see experience. So the second way I want to explore um, feelings, the connection of feelings and views, is as an aspect that feeling is an aspect of every phenomenon that that we experience. Everything that appears in our mind and body stream has this quality of feeling of being pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. This teaching, you're all, are you all familiar with this aspect of this teaching? Um, so everything we experience has this quality of feeling. So to me, this is a little bit pointing to the fact that um, what the Buddha is pointing to when he says, this is only the feeling of those who do not know and see. I think he's pointing to the fact that the view itself is an arising event that has a feeling to it. That's what the view is. It's a phenomenon arising in our mind. So on the next page of the supplemental handout, there's a a teaching that speaks more directly to this, uh, the top of page 8. One may have such a view as this, and he lists some of them. So one may have such a view as this. The self is the same as the cosmos. I will be after death, constant, lasting, eternal, not subject to change. This eternalist view is a fabrication. It's, it's essentially a fabrication is that aspect of the skandhas, the um, mental formations aspect of the skandhas. It is a... Um, a process arising in the mind. And so on he goes for all of them. This annihilationist view is a fabrication. 
Or he may be doubtful, uncertain, having come to no conclusion. This doubt, uncertainty, coming to no conclusion is a fabrication. So what is the cause, the origination, the birth, the coming into existence of that fabrication? To an, un, to an uninstructed, run-of-the-mill person, touched by what is felt, born of contact with ignorance, craving arises. So again, coming back to feeling. The fabrication is born of that. That fabrication is in constant, fabricated, dependently co-arisen. That craving, that feeling, that contact, that ignorance is in constant, fabricated, dependently co-arisen. It is by knowing and seeing in this way that one without delay puts an end to the effluence. So to me, this points to the um, the notion of a formation of view as a process happening in the mind, simply as a phenomenon, a thought appearing in the mind, a formation appearing in the mind. When a view is seen as a formation, concepts of truth and false do not apply. Or the concepts of truth and false that we normally think about them do not apply. They are simply phenomenon. When seen in this way, the content of the view is not important. Whether you believe it or not is not important. What is important is the process nature of the view is seen for what it is simply an arising phenomenon. So there's, um, let's see, page eight of the handout, um, place where it starts with questioner, about half, a third of the way down the page. This is from the Atakavaga in the Sutta Nipata. This has become one of my favorite texts. A questioner says, What some say is real, true, others say is empty, false. Thus arguing their own position, they fall into dispute. So why don't contemplatives say one and the same thing? The Buddha, the truth is single. I think that's an amazing statement, actually. If you want a a statement of truth, here it is. The truth is single. There is not another truth about which mankind should contend. Contemplatives proclaim their own various truths. That is why they don't say one and the same thing. The questioner comes back. But why do they preach differing truths, these argumentative so-called experts? Have they come across many different truths, or are they merely speculating? The Buddha. Apart from the mere idea of it, there are not many and various eternal truths in the world. But those people, by applying reason in respect to views, say there are two dhammas, truth and falsehood. So to me what this is saying is that when looked at from the perspective of the content, there's truth and falsehood. We, could, we have the notion of truth and falsehood. When looked at with the respect to the process I think what the Buddha is talking about when he says the truth is single is, and this is my understanding, I I cannot say this is what he's saying, but to me what I think he's pointing to is the truth is the arising of experience. That is all. That there's no need to contend about the concepts. So the truth that the Buddha is talking about, I think, is the truth of experience. So this, to me, is the difference in what the Buddha's teaching is. He is not trying to affirm a concept. His teachings point to a way of being in the world whereby we meet experience moment to moment and not not necessarily around affirming or denying truth of concepts. Yeah. So what, make, what makes so what makes right view right view isn't that it's true, but that it 
enhances the ending of suffering. That's that's one way to look at it. And I'll jump ahead here. This was going to be what I closed with, but I'll go ahead and read this because it fits in with what your question is. Um, One scholar, um, this is a quote from Fuller's book, The Notion of Ditti in Theravada Buddhism. Um, To abandon wrong views or all views is to abandon attachment to doctrine, not doctrine itself. The doctrine of anatta is not concerned with whether or not there is a self, but with the fact that craving is the cause of dukkha. Knowledge of this is right view. Knowledge consists in knowing the cessation of craving, and this is knowledge of things as they are. When the texts teach that one should strive to attain right view, they are arguing for the attainment of a very specific attitude, a way of apprehending things without any form of attachment. Right view is not simply another view as opposed to wrong view, nor is it the rejection of all views. The opposite of wrong view is of a different nature, not a mere correction, but a different order of seeing. I think that's a beautiful way of putting it. It's just, it just, it gives me chills when I read it. Um, (laughs) We'll see. If I have time at the end, I'll read it again. It was the way I was going to end. I thought it would be a good way to end. (laughs) So to me, that's really what he's pointing to. It's not truth and falsehood in the normal way of thinking of truth and falsehood that we that we think about it it's not concept so the buddha said in another um, text the next text down for the destruction of all such views about the past and the future and for transcending them i have taught and laid down the four foundations of mindfulness So this, the four foundations really encourages us to meet experience directly. So this, to me, again, this is the the cultivation of mindfulness to unmasking these views, to seeing where the, what the views are and how we are looking through them, to continually recognizing these views as a formation, not as something to believe or not. And I actually have been using this in my meditation. You know, it's like something comes up. It's like, oh, what? I need to do that thing. It's like, that's just a view. Not only that I need to do it, but that I have to do it. That I am a thing that has to do something. It's like, this is just a formation. It's just a phenomenon that's arising here and now. It's kind of like, it makes me real. Happiness arises. (laughs) Happiness arises in that moment. It's like, oh. (laughs) <laughs> it's a radical formation. It is very radical. <laughs> so uh, here's a quote from Stephen Batchelor's recent book, Confession of a Buddhist Atheist. Rather than dissociating oneself from the world in order to achieve a union with God, the Buddha encouraged his followers to pay close attention to the rise and fall of the phenomenal world itself. Again, it's like he's, he's pointing not to something transcending. To me, this is really a lot of what's going on here. The Buddha's not pointing to something that transcends the world. He's saying immerse in the world, connect with, meet, experience. This is where you will see what's happening, where you will see truth, essentially. Truth in a different form, not the truth of concept, but the truth of experience. The way which in which he presented the practice of meditation turned the received wisdom of his day on its head. Inst- instead of instructing his students to turn their attention towards the nature of their soul and the world, which is essentially a big part of what the religious traditions of his day did, he told them to be acutely aware of their bodies to be calmly mindful of whatever was impacting one's senses in that very moment, noticing its emergence and disappearance, its ephemerality, its impersonality, its joy and its tragedy, its allure and its terror. So he basically told them to just be mindful of everything that's going on and all the ideas we have about it as phenomenon. This is terrifying is a formation. 
This is happiness. This is a, as a form, the thought as a formation. So to go along with this practice, the, the practice of mindfulness, when views arise, see them as a rising phenomenon. There's another um, sutta that I think really is applicable here. This is the last one in the handout, the supplemental handout. Um, and we do have time, so we'll go ahead and read. I'll read through. I'll read through this one because it's a it's a it's a it's a good story. Page eight of nine on the supplemental handout. Use of views to transcend views. This is essentially talking about how can we pragmatically use a view because the way wisdom works, I mean, you know, and this is a, 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 the teaching too, I think, of the Atakavaga, of the parable of the raft, that we can't simply say doctrine, humbug, forget it. We need to use something that points us in the direction or else we're just going to be swimming. We need something to help us transcend. We need a kind of view that can lead the way to transcending views. So the parable of a raft is, is one of the uh, texts that points to this, that you create a raft by which you cross over suffering. And once you've crossed over, you don't carry that raft around with you on your head. It's no need to. So in a, he, the Buddha talks about the Dharma being like a raft. So the doctrine like a raft. The doctrine that he teaches is like a raft. That it is for the purpose of crossing over, not for the purpose of clinging. That's the teaching of the, the analogy, the simile of the raft. So this, this sutta, this using of views to transcend views. So this is Anandapindika, uh, our um, wonderful, generous, Householder who uh, created a monastery for the Buddha. Um, so this is Anandapindika talking to various wanderers. So this is a householder having an exchange. Then Anandapindika, the householder, went to where the wanderers, wanderers of other persuasions were staying. On arrival, he greeted them courteously. After an exchange of friendly greetings and courtesies, he sat to one side As he was sitting there, the wanderer said to him, Tell us, householder, what views the contemplative Gautama has. Venerable sirs, I do not entirely know what views the Blessed One has. Well, well, so you don't know what views the contemplative Gautama has. Well, then, tell us what views the monks have. I don't even entirely know what views the monks have. So you don't know what the views the contemplative Gautama has, or even what the monks have. I'm sensing a little sarcasm going on here. (laughs) Can you tell us what views you have? It wouldn't be difficult for me to expound to you what views I have, but please let the venerable ones expound each in line with his position, and then it won't be difficult for me to expound to you what views I have. When this was said, each of the wanderers said to Anandapindika, the householder, One of the wanderers said to Anandapindika, the householder, the cosmos is eternal. Only this is true. Anything else is worthless. This is the sort of view I have. Another wanderer said to Anandapindika, the cosmos is not eternal. Only this is true. Anything else is worthless. That is the sort of view I have. And on with the other views. When this had been said, Anandapindika, the householder, said to the wanderers, as for the venerable one who says the cosmos is eternal, Only this is true. Anything else is worthless. This is the sort of view I have. His view arises from his own inappropriate attention or independence on the words of another. Now, this view has been brought into being, is fabricated, willed, dependently originated. Whatever has been brought into being is fabricated, willed, dependently originated. That is inconstant. Whatever is inconstant is stress. This venerable one thus adheres to that very same stress, submits himself to that very stress, similar for the other positions. So here he's pointing out, essentially, this notion of um, 
the views being fabrication and that clinging to those views is stressful. When this was said, the wanderer said to Ananda Pindaka, the householder, we have each and every one of us expounded to you in line with our position. Now tell us what views you have. Whatever has been brought into being is fabricated, willed, dependently originated. That is inconstant. Whatever is inconstant is stress. Whatever is stress is not me, is not what I am, is not myself. This is the sort of view I have. And the wanderers tried to turn his own argument on him. So, householder, whatever has been brought into being is fabricated, willed, dependently originated. That is inconstant. Whatever is inconstant is stress. You thus adhere to that very stress. Submit yourself to that very stress. And Ananda Pindaka says, Venerable sirs, whatever has been brought into being is fabricated, will dependently originated. That is inconstant. Whatever is inconstant is stress. Whatever is stress is not me, is not what I am, is not myself. Having seen this well with right discernment as it is actually present, I also discern the higher escape from it as it is actually present. So this is basically saying, this is the sort of view I have and I see it as a phenomenon. This is a phenomenon that arises. So it, it, in a sense, points to the way or a view that can be hold, held, which would allow us to ultimately uh, dismantle this whole process of constructing views and dismantle the whole process of clinging to views. It's really the clinging that's the problem, that's, that's the key. So we, we, as unenlightened people, we do have views. So what are skillful views? What are, are views that are helpful towards leading away from suffering? This is what the, the problem the Buddha was trying to solve, is what's suffering, what's not suffering. So what are views that support that movement? This is, could be said to be right view in a, an, a worldly perspective. You know, holding in your mind or using, pragmatically using views that support what leads us away from suffering. What leads us away from suffering is letting go of craving, letting go of clinging. So to hold that as a view, one also then has to know that clinging to even that view is suffering. And so it's kind of like we pragmatically hold views and we, we, we let go of levels of clinging. And at some point, the deepest level of clinging will maybe the holding to that very view. And that is what would need to then be released. So that for a time, holding that view or even, you know, even if you know that it's a view, even if that you know that it's a view, you may still have some idea of clinging to it. I certainly have a sense of clinging to some of the Buddhist teachings, and yet they serve. I also know that at some point I will probably run up against that very clinging and need to release, let go of that very clinging. So that's... Then I, oh, then I wanted to go back to the, the refrain teaching to point to what the Buddha said um, about his realization. He says, so this is in the refrain on page seven. These standpoints thus assumed and thus misapprehended lead to such a future de- destination, to such a state in the world beyond. He understands well what transcends this, yet even that understanding he does not misapprehend. I think that's what he's pointing to here, that he understands that his understanding is a phenomenon arising in the mind, not something to be put out as something to state true or false, but just a phenomenon. So this is pretty radical. And this is, inc- I mean, the more I really get into what the Buddha had to say, it is so radical. So right view 
you know, begins with this notion of, to some extent, belief, because we don't have the, we can't just move immediately to this uh, freedom from views. We need a tool to help us dismantle our views. So uh, the, you know, the right view has its mundane place, but the full flowering of right view, my understanding of the full, you know, the, in an enlightened being, right view is what Paul Fuller described. Would you like me to read that again? To abandon wrong views or all views is to abandon attachment to doctrine, not doctrine itself. The doctrine of anatta is not concerned with whether or not there is a self, but with the fact that craving is the cause of dukkha. Knowledge of this is right view. Knowledge consists in knowing the cessation of craving, and this is knowledge of things as they are. When the texts teach that one should strive to attain right view, they are arguing for the attainment of a very specific attitude, a way of apprehending things without any form of attachment. Right view is not simply another view as opposed to wrong view, nor is it the rejection of all views. The opposite of wrong view is of a different nature, not a mere correction, but a different order of seeing. So what does anybody have to say now? <laughs> we've got we've got four minutes. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> and that story is fabricated, dependently arisen, <laughs> subject to stress <laughs> when adhered to. So any any comments, any thoughts, any yeah, great. Um, I I just notice that um, a lot of times it seems like in Buddhist circles that people put forward the idea that there is no self, and so I just think that it's that there being no self is a that's a view. means to well, and that's actually the Buddha. The Buddha said there's one place. I don't have the quote right on top of my head, but but there's one place where he says, "There is a self. That's a view. There is no self. That's a view." It might even be in Majjhima Nikaya too. Let's see if it's here. Ah, it is. Okay. So this is this is six views, six views of self. The view self exists for me arises in him as true as established or the view no self arises for me ex- arises in him as true as established. So they are both described as a thicket of view, a wilderness of view. So to um, to hold the view I have no self is also described as not skillful. It seems more like like anatta is more like it's each object that comes around that you think, oh, that's me, or this, you know, that that's that's it's, the clinging. Yeah, it's it the clinging. The the my understanding is that the the teaching of anatta comes back to that middle teaching, you know, that that teaching of um, you know most people have this notion of either existence or non-existence with respect to the world, and the Buddha says, I teach something in the middle. You know, with ignorance as a condition, formations arise. With formations as a condition, consciousness arises. That there is just this process. And in this process, particularly in the fabrication area, uh, the mental formation area, an idea of self arises. And so what we think of as self is a fabrication um, and the whole notion of what we are is seen as a process, not an entity, that we can't pin anything down. So, you know, um, I think it's true people do often kind of use it as a shortcut to say there is no self. Um, I've certainly probably been guilty of saying that, but that is not, 
I mean, to to me, that's that statement there is the statement there is pretty clear. Uh, that I have no self arises in me is a view, a thicket of views, a wilderness of views, a fetter of views. <laughs> so not a skillful view to hold. Yeah. I think understanding self as a process is maybe an, a, a, rather than I don't exist or I am no self. I mean, that itself is saying I am something. Um, so to, to understand, I, I think holding it as a process is, is, is the helpful, is a helpful, more helpful to, to use this middle teaching around process as opposed to existence or thingness. To, to see things as a process rather than an existing thing. Yeah. So it's one o'clock. Um, did you have a question? Okay. Why don't we? Um, I do want to finish because it's one o'clock. So. So thank you for your attention. To me, this is a. I mean, it was a pretty dense, <laughs> a pretty dense day, but. <laughs> and on behalf of the Sati Center, we thank you from the bottom of our hearts for a beautiful teaching today. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Thank you. And um, thank you all for coming. You're released. <laughs> Unbound. Thank you, Andrea.